Hello listeners and lovers of learning, and welcome to episode 5 of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. Recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, this is the podcast in which I summarise my key takeaways from Twitter, blogs, research papers, conversations, and even my own classroom from the week just past. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at why minimal guidance during instruction doesn't work. We'll be revisiting the article that we looked touched on last week by John Sweller, story of a research program, and look at the biological basis for his arguments. We'll be again touching on the reliability of teacher observations when assessing teacher performance, and we'll be considering routines to help avoid functional stupidity, as well as ending with a quick story from the classroom. Thanks for joining me, Ollie Lovell, for another episode of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. Following on from my explorations last week on cognitive load theory and specifically work of John Sweller, this week I started reading an article by Paul Kirshner, John Sweller and Richard Clark entitled Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work? An Analysis of the Failure of Constructivist, Discovery, Problem-Based, Experiential and Inquiry-Based Teaching. I came across this article uh, through a blog post by Greg Ashman, which was summar- summarizing some important takeaways from cognitive load theory. And it's really one of the seminal papers, really, in many ways, attacking constructivist notions of education and providing a real strong evidence basis for direct instruction. I'm going to start off by touching on two debates that really color the for and against of minimally guided instruction. Here's an assertion as captured in the paper. The most recent version of instruction with minimal guidance comes from constructivism, which appears to have been derived from observations that knowledge is constructed by learners and so, a, they need to have the opportunity to construct by being presented with goals and minimal information, and b, learning is idiosyncratic and so a common instructional format or strategies are ineffective. So the way that this paper sets this up is it puts forward one argument for constructivism And then it provides some evidence to the contrary. Here's the response. The constructivist description of learning is accurate, but the instructional consequences suggested by a constructivist do not necessarily follow. So essentially what they're saying is learners have to construct a mental schema of the information in the end, whatever you're trying to teach them. That's what we're trying to furnish them with. And it turns out the less of a schema we give them, as is the case with minimal guidance, the less complete of a schema they end up with. Essentially, if we give them the full picture, it will better help them to construct that full picture. It kind of makes sense and it kind of brings into question the concept that by giving people little, little pieces of the puzzle, they're going to be able to construct a better puzzle at the end. When cased in these terms, constructivism and minimal guidance instruction sounds like a bit of a funny idea. Another assertion that the paper suggests is, Another consequence of attempts to implement constructivist theory is a shift of emphasis away from teaching a discipline as a body of knowledge and towards an exclusive emphasis on learning a discipline by experiencing the process and procedures of the discipline. For example, this is something we've seen uh, in many Western countries, but I can speak about Victoria in recent years. We're talking about teaching science by inquiry. Science in schools must mirror and mimic the science that goes on outside of school in the research space. Back to the quote. This change in focus was accompanied by an assumption shared by many leading educators and discipline specialists that knowledge can be best be learned or only learned through experiences that is based primarily on the procedures of the discipline. 
as I was saying. This point of view led to a commitment by educators to extensive practical or project work and the rejection of instruction based on the facts, laws, principles and theory that make up a discipline's content, accompanied by the use of discovery, inquiry methods of instruction. So the response to this is essentially as follows. It may be a fundamental error to assume that the pedagogical content of the learning experience is identical to the methods and processes, i.e. the epistemology, of the discipline being studied and a mistake to assume that instruction should exclusively focus on methods and processes. This really gets to the heart of the distinction between experts and novices. Experts and novices simply do not learn the same way. They don't have the same background knowledge at their disposal. By teaching novices as in students in school, in the way that experts should be taught or in the way that experts are expected to explore, for example, the scientists out in the real world, we're really doing them a disservice, overloading their working memories and simply being ineffective teachers. So that was the first two really strong assertions. One's kind of a naturalistic one and one is a uh, copying real life kind of one that constructivism puts forward and two arguments against. But then the paper's authors really drill down to the evidence and they say, none of the preceding arguments and theorizing would be important if there was a clear body of research using controlled experiments indicating that unguided or minimally guided instruction, for example, constructivism, was more effective than guided instruction. Jumping forward a bit, Mayer from 2004 recently reviewed evidence from studies conducted from 1950 to the late 80s comparing pure discovery learning to find as unguided problem-based instruction with guided forms of instruction. He suggested that in each decade since the mid-1950s, when empirical studies provided solid evidence that the then popular unguided approach did not work, a similar approach popped up under a different name, with the cycle then repeating itself. We're seeing it over and over again. Each new set of advocates for unguided approaches seemed either unaware of or uninterested in previous evidence that unguided approaches had not been validated. This pattern produced discovery learning, which then gave way to experiential learning, which gave way to problem-based and inquiry learning, which now gives way to constructivist instructional techniques. May concluded that the debate about discovery has been replayed many times in education, but each time the evidence has favoured a guided approach to learning. The paper then goes on to cite a whole heap of current research supporting guided instruction. This list is too long, but for, for example, some experts talk about the work of Alls who observed a number of teachers as they implemented constructive activities, he described the scaffolding that the most effective teachers introduced when students failed to make learning progress in a discovery setting, and he reported that the teacher whose students achieved all of their learning goals spent a great deal of time in instructional interaction with students. So effectively what Alls found, that's A-U-L-L-S from 2002, you can find it in the show notes, what Alls found was for those teachers who are teaching by constructivist methods, the ones who actually achieved the learning goals are the ones who moved most far away from constructivist methods and most towards instructional interactions with students. And I've put in a couple of other references there for anyone who's keen uh, to look in the show notes and follow up on that. Last week we talked about uh, John Sweller's story of a research program and we touched on the goal-free effect, worked example effect and the split attention effect. I'd love to point listeners to a post I put in this week about trying out the goal-free effect in my classroom. And if people would like to explore that further, there's a link to that post in the show notes. The reason why I wanted to return to John Swiller's article this week was to touch on another uh, topic that he addresses in it, and that's the biological basis 
for cognitive load theory, uh, but also for the reason why in some cases it seems that people are able to naturally learn things without any assistance, whilst in others uh, there isn't an ability or there's a m it's much harder for them to do so. And instruction works wonders. Sweller sets it up in this way. He talks about how it was a great challenge for him and his theory in the early days to explain this kind of difference uh, between some skills being easy to address and to learn for people and some skills to be harder to naturally acquire. He then talks about some work of David Geary saying the following. David Geary provided the relevant theoretical constructs. This is in relation to solving this challenge. He described two categories of knowledge biologically primary knowledge that we have evolved to acquire and so learn effortlessly and unconsciously, and biologically secondary knowledge that we need for cultural reasons. Examples of primary knowledge are learning to listen and speak a first language, while virtually everything learned in educational institutions provides an example of biologically secondary knowledge. We invented schools in order to provide biologically secondary knowledge. Jumping forwards in the article, he says, for many years our field had been faced with arguments along the following lines. And this is going to sound similar to what I was saying earlier in this podcast. Look at the ease with which people learn outside of class and the difficulty they have learning in class. They can accomplish objectively complex tasks such as learning to listen and speak, to recognize phases or to interact with each other with consummate ease. In contrast, look at how relatively difficult it is for students to learn to read and write, learn mathematics or learn any of the other subjects taught in class. The key, the argument went, was to make learning in class more similar to learning outside of class. The argument kind of makes sense, really. If we made learning in class similar to learning outside of class, it would be just as natural and easy. How might we model learning in class on learning outside of class? The argument was obvious. We should allow learners to discover knowledge for themselves without explicit teaching. We should not present information to learners. It was called knowledge transmission because that is an unnatural, perhaps impossible, way of learning. We cannot transmit knowledge to learners because they have to construct it themselves. All we can do is organise the conditions that will facilitate knowledge instruction and then leave it to students to construct their version of reality themselves. The argument was plausible and swept the education world. And there is a real romance to this argument. Uh, in, its, in the same way as, this sounds very familiar to something we uh, have been hearing recently, and that is with the rise of Google, people say that now students don't need to learn facts. They just need to learn skills such as critical thinking uh, because now they can search all the facts on their computers and their Google and their mobile devices that are in their pocket right now. The fact of the matter is students only have limited working memory. And if we're, and if we're expecting them to search information then integrate it in their mind at the same time, we're going to overload that working memory and they're not going to be able to solve tasks. Furthermore, it's actually the knowledge that's required in order to think critically. This runs parallel to a lot of arguments we hear and have been hearing recently about how obsolete knowledge is. Essentially, the argument goes, well, these days we've got so many computers, phones, we've got Google at our fingertips. Uh, we don't need to know no facts anymore because we can just Google them. What this fails to recognize is simple cognitive principles behind critical thinking, the fact that we actually need background knowledge, the fact that we actually need knowledge in our long-term memory to relieve pressure on our working memory and provide space in that working memory for conscious and critical thinking. 
two strong arguments that sound very convincing to the layperson, but unfortunately just don't hold up in the face of cognitive science. Returning to Swallow's article, the argument had one flaw. It was impossible to develop a body of empirical literature supporting it using properly constructed randomized control trials. Altering one variable at a time, the worked example effect. The worked example effect demonstrated clearly that showing learners how to do something was far better than having them work it out for themselves. Of course, with the advantage of hindsight provided by Geary's distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge, it is obvious where the problem lies. The difference in ease of learning between class-based and non-class-based topics had nothing to do with differences in how they were taught and everything to do with differences in the nature of the topics. When I read this, it totally blew my mind. Love this stuff. If class-based topics really could be learned as easily as non-class-based topics, we would never have bothered including them in a curriculum since they would be learned perfectly well without even being mentioned in educational institutions. If children are not explicitly taught to read and write in school, most of them will not learn to read and write. In contrast, they will learn to listen and speak without ever going to school. In episode two of the Education Research Reading Room, uh, another podcast that, that I work on, I talked to Stephen Dinham uh, at length, myself and the group of early career educators, about what the purpose of schooling is. And I just find this a really interesting conceptualization of the purpose of schooling, that being to impart biologically secondary knowledge to students. So for me, this uh, biological basis of this difference uh, was just an absolute revelation. and I really enjoyed learning about these different types of knowledge. And I know it's a lesson that's going to stay with me. Some listeners may remember in episode one how I spoke of the Mr. Barton podcast that featured Dylan William. And he talked about the reliability of uh, teacher observations and rating teachers based on observations. And he quoted the research of Heather Hill. He claimed that 30 individual observations were required of a teacher to, in order to get uh, a fair appraisal of their, of their work and that that work was the work of Heather Hill. As the new head of maths at my school, I was really keen to um, bring more of a positive class observation culture to my school and I thought, wow, this is such a great fact because I can say evidence actually says that by coming into your class, I know that I'm never going to make a, be able to make a fair appraisal of your teaching. Therefore, the purpose of my visit is not to appraise your teaching at all. It's actually just to, one, learn from you, two, support your students, and three, help to guide you and for you to, you know, to be another set of eyes in your classroom, an outside set of eyes, and for me to help you better achieve your goals as a teacher. Wanting to have the citation correct uh, in order to do this, I, I've actually followed up with Heather Hill. I found her email on the Harvard website, and I, and I showed her an email, and I, I basically asked, um, I mentioned that Dylan William quotes you and says, Heather Hill's work at Harvard suggests that a teacher would need to be observed teaching five different classes with every observation made by at least six independent observers to reduce chance to really be able to judge a teacher. I asked Heather Hill if this was correct and I was stoked that she replied. Um, she said, hey Ollie, thanks for your question. For my own instrument, it originally looked like we needed four observations, each scored by four raters. See attached paper. However, Andrew Ho and colleagues came up with the six observations 
with five observers' estimates from MET data. MET stands for Measures of Effective Teaching Project. It was a K-12 education project and it was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates. Uh, and then Heather provides a link. And looking at our own reliability data, I tend to believe his estimate that is Andrew Ho's more than our own. Smiley face. In my opinion, however, I wouldn't worry too much about score reliability if the observations are used for informal slash growth purposes. People actually processing the instructions they are seeing and then talking about it is probably more valuable than being right about the score a lesson gets. That principle is actually the basis of our own coaching program, which we built around our observation instrument, the MQI. And then Heather provides a link to that instrument. The goal is to have teachers learn the MQI, though any instrument would do, then analyze their own instruction vis-a-vis -vis the MQI and plan for improvement by using the upper MQI score points as targets. Mm, this sounds a lot like visible learning to me, helping the learner, in this case the teacher, know where they're going, uh, how they're going, and where to next. So for instance, if a teacher concludes that she is a low for student engagement, she then plans with her coach how to become a mid on this item. The coach serves as a therapist of sorts, giving teachers tools, cheering her on, and making sure she stays on course. Teachers tend to really like this form of coaching because they drive it rather than it coming from an external source. And then she says the actual MQI instrument itself and its training is here and provides a link. Really worth checking out these resources. I look forward to delving into them a little bit more and potentially even using them with my maths team this year. The final article I wanted to touch on today is speaking about routines. This post was from Gary Jones and it was entitled, Do You Work in a Stupid School? And it was on functional stupidity and how smart people end up doing silly things that result in all sorts of bad outcomes, one of which is poor instruction for students. Essentially, they stop thinking critically, they stop analysing their practice, and they fall into really bad habits. Here are two of the seven routines that this post highlighted for avoiding functional stupidity. I thought they were interesting, and I thought they were worth sharing uh, for those of us who are acting in a functionally stupid, stupid way, uh, but also for anyone who has a tendency to fall into habits, which is probably all human beings. Quick note, this is originally from a Alveson and Spices 2016 publication, which was The Stupidity Paradox, The Power and Pitfalls of Functional Stupidity at Work. The first is to do with newcomers. Uh, in Australia, it's the start of the year, and we've got lots of new teachers coming into schools, and I, I think this quote really, or this short passage, really highlighted some of the benefits that can come from those new eyes. Newcomers. Find ways of taking advantage of the perspective of new members of staff and their beginner's mind. Ask them what seems strange or confusing. What's different? What could be done differently? Maybe there's someone in your mind at the moment in your school or your organisation who you recognise as a new, new person to the team and may, you know, if, it's, if you bother asking them at lunchtime what seems strange or confusing, what's different, what could be done differently, they might have some really original ideas. The final one and the one I'd like to finish on today is the idea of pre-mortems. Work out why a project failed before you even start the project. And we're provided with a link for more details, but actually from my classroom this week, I have a pretty good example. So for our maths and science department, I managed to secure a class set of laptops for this year, uh, which is really exciting because we're not a one-to-one -one school. Uh, so it's a great opportunity to get more technology in the classroom. Technology isn't always good though. Um, what I wanted to specifically do was to teach students how to use Google Docs so I can effectively use comments, uh, suggestions, the editing function in order to provide quicker feedback 
I can type a lot faster than I can write, and also I can monitor their progress uh, in real time as they're working on their physics prac reports. So just as a, a kind of an intro into using these, I created this shared Google Doc, and basically uh, we were learning all about the visible light spectrum, sorry, the electromagnetic spectrum, and the idea was for students to each, I split them into five groups, we had a five-minute movie, that was really detail packed and I got each of the groups to analyze a minute of the movie each to then write a 25 exactly word summary uh, and to write a question that could be answered by reading their 25 word summary. The idea was that they'd all come together, they'd be able to work on the document together and that they'd, they'd be able to see each other's work in real time, it'd be exciting and it was exciting for them. <laughs> Except for one thing. What I hadn't anticipated is that students um, empowered by this new technology, would actually realize that they could play God and start to, in real time, delete each other's work. <laughs> so, I was circ circ circulating around the classroom and, and watching the students supporting them, and then suddenly I hear this, Hey, who did that? <laughs> and then laughter erupts from another corner of the classroom. Then another group, Hey, what just happened? Laughter again from the corner. Before long, it became pretty, pretty uh, evident what was happening. I was actually absolutely uh, laughing on the inside, but I had to put on my my serious teacher face and tell them how these. I had to tell them, okay, everybody, now you're in year eleven. You know, it's not time for high school fun and games anymore. This is serious. This is a learning activity. I want you to take it seriously. It's not okay to be delayed. You know how the telling off goes. Um, managed to pull them back, but I think if I had conducted a pre mortem in this context, perhaps it would have uh, alerted me to the fact that such an event could potentially precipitate uh, and I could have potentially avoided. For next time, I've used a, a really good function um, that's going to enable me to make multiple copies of the work in order to try to avoid this challenge. Uh, then I'll just have to share them with me and I'll have to collate them all together. Uh, but yeah, pre-mortism in this case could have been good. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. It's been a pretty big big one. Uh, we've gone into a, quite a bit of detail about why minimal guidance during instruction doesn't work. We talked about the biological basis of cognitive load theory. We talked about uh, revisiting he the work of Heather Hill uh, and classroom observations, the reliability of them, as, as well as their MQI coaching tool. We talked about routines and finished with a little bit of a story. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that I mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. That's Ollie with two L's, an I and an E. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, please write a review on iTunes to help more people to find the podcast. If you had any thoughts, reflections or arguments in regards to this week's podcast, I'd really love for you to get in touch with me via Twitter. You can find me on Twitter with the handle at Ollie, O-L-L-I-E, underscore, Lovell, L-O-V-E-L-L. -L. Thanks for your time. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. <laughs>